0: When I started writing, I, my intention was to help my students speak up for them, but there's something magical about writing where it, you, you know, at one point you think you're leading the words and then they start leading you. I am so
1: excited about today's guest. Najwa
0: Zavian. She's
1: a Lebanese-Canadian activist, author, speaker, and educator. Through her three books and her podcast, Stories of the Soul, and her own digital school, Soul Academy, she continues to give a voice to countless souls out there aching to be heard. Now, I also have a very personal reason for being so excited about having Nejwa on the show. I was born and raised between Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, and Zawiya Libya. I know very intimately what it feels like to belong and not belong in multiple places, and to have to always kind of explain parts of your identity. So, so much of her writing, so much of her thoughts um, and her voice is not only compelling because of how beautiful it is, but because oftentimes it speaks the exact feelings that I have and that I know so many others have. This is At The Table with Dr. Elam Urabid. Now for those of you who don't know me, I am a UN High-Level Commissioner on Health, Employment and Economic Growth. One of 17 global UN Sustainable Development Goal Advocates. I am also a medical doctor and a women's rights champion and strategist. I have traveled the world and met people who are leaders in their own industries. And I've met people who have completely changed the game from names that we know, To names that we don't. There are people who have championed inclusive security more than anything else. So At The Table is really a collection of in-depth conversations and interviews with leaders in all industries. It's looking at how we create systems and structures and communities and selves that really represent what we need in the world today. Now it's been called At The Table because I think the single most important thing is for us to create and cultivate spaces and this one is mine where I invite you to connect with and to learn from and to teach one another about the importance of inclusive leadership and making sure that when you are at any table, you are bringing somebody with you, an idea with you, a perspective with you that isn't already there. So thank you again for joining me. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening and for being here. And please let me know what does being at the table mean to you and who are you bringing with you?
0: Nezhuat, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, and I'm so excited to be having this conversation with you.
1: So, Nejua, the very first question I ask, uh, you know, anyone who's taken the time to come at the table, and and, and the question that I hope all of our community is asking as they listen, um, is if you had to tell me in two different words how you feel today, like I feel X, what would it be?
0: I would say... um, I feel powerful and brave.
1: Wow. I am so excited, just based on that alone, for the conversation that we're going to (laughs) have.
0: And I'm honestly feeling that way today. I was even talking to my friend earlier about it. Um, Just being really and truly myself with all that comes with all the headache that comes with it and all the, you know, feeling out of place and feeling pushed to the side and feeling looked down upon by some people. It's so worth it because at the end of the day, when I fall asleep, I know that who I am in this moment when nobody is around me is the same person that I am. When i'm around people i know that i'm not putting on a show and i know that even though some people you know don't have respect for me for me as i as i really am as a person that doesn't affect me it doesn't it doesn't override my need to truly be myself and so that's why i use those words
1: wow so You know we had we've been speaking a little earlier and you're based out of london
0: ontario but to my understanding that's not where you grew up no i actually moved here when i was 16 years old my family had already been here because that's where um they were based long before i was born so uh, i made the permanent move here when i was 16 years old but i was born and raised in lebanon um so i lived basically half my life there.
1: Can you tell us a little bit more about where and how you grew up?
0: Yeah, so I was born in a very tiny village um, on a mountain in Lebanon, and it's such a serene place, honestly, to reflect back on. And I think it had a big um, impact on just the kind of person that I am today because it's very secluded, it's very simple, um, everybody there is just, everybody knows everybody. Um, it has such a sentimental feel wherever you go. Um, like it was so small that we didn't even have a school there that you could attend. I had to go to a school outside of the village and, um, it was about 30 minutes away. And I just remember, you know, living a very, um, a very peaceful life childhood and where I knew everybody and everybody knew me, um, which was such a contrast between here and there. Yeah. So then why, you know, you, you, you've grown up in Lebanon.
1: Um, you have your brothers and sisters there, I'm assuming. Your parents are there.
0: What, what was the impetus to leave? So my family, Uh, So my parents met and got married in Canada. They're originally Lebanese, but they both came here very young. Years later, they met, got married and had five children here and then decided that they wanted to move to Lebanon because they wanted their kids to learn Arabic. My sister came home one day, my oldest sister, um, and my dad spoke to her in Arabic and she couldn't understand him. So that's when it really hit him you know, my kids need to learn their first language. So he, you know, closed his businesses here, he had clothing stores, and he moved back to where both him and my mom were originally from. And that's where I was born. So I'm the only one in my family born and raised in Lebanon. So and I came years later. So when my older siblings, um, one of them moved back when he turned 15, I would have been two or three years old at the time. Um, My other brothers moved here when they were 18. I would have been nine or 10 at the time. And my uh, oldest sister got married when I was super young and also moved here. And then my other sister also got married and came back here. So at the time that I decided to move to Canada, Um, It wasn't even a decision, to be honest, I was about to turn 16 years old, and I wanted to come and see my family, I had done like an appendix surgery at the time, and I was living with uh, my uncle in Lebanon, both of my parents were here, and my siblings were here. So the plan was to come and visit them for the summer. And as soon as I arrived, it would have been a month or two, I don't remember exactly, after I arrived, uh, the war broke out in Lebanon. This would have been 2006. So, you know, it was the year right before grade 12 and I had to quickly make the decision to say, okay, like this is it, I'm actually staying here. Um, So that's what prompted that move.
1: That's, um, you know, I, I oftentimes meet people who, who have had, you know, the similar experience to me or to you where they've kind of at 15, 16, I moved back to Libya when I was 15 years old, having been born and raised in Saskatoon. Um, so mm-hmm. kind of reverse of what you did and the first question, and I am sure you get asked this by everyone is like, okay, but what about the culture shock? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I always get asked that question. And to be honest with you, no one really cared when I first arrived. They care more now (laughs) than they do when I first arrived because that's when I needed it the most. It's like because I spoke English fluently, I grew up like my mom spoke English. She still speaks English better than she speaks Arabic. And so when I came here, I had you know, I was fully bilingual. You couldn't tell if you heard me speak English, you would think English was my first language. So students automatically assumed um, in high school that I had come from a different province or a different school. Nobody thought to ask like, where did you come from? Which I guess is is nice in hindsight, but um, my teachers who knew I had moved from Lebanon there wasn't that sensitivity to like, are you okay? Is there anything that you need explained? And there's one story that I vividly remember. So in, in our village back home, the number of people who had cell phones could be counted on your hands. Um, because again, we lived a very simple life and then I come here and everybody in high school has a cell phone and so I thought, okay, it's normal. My parents got me a cell phone because I s you know, they wanted to make sure that when I finished school that there was somebody there waiting for me for safety reasons. And then I, I, I vividly remember one day um my mom I think had texted me and I would I was walking in the in the hall of the school and all I hear is like a a man who I'm guessing was a teacher um, screaming from the other other end of the hall saying um, go outside right now or um, or I'm going to send you to the office or something like that and I I remember looking behind me like is he talking to me is he talking to someone else because I didn't know that what I was doing was wrong I didn't know that like I couldn't use my cell phone in school um and i think that's just i know it's a, it's a small story but it's just a i guess it's a simple way of saying there was a lot that i didn't know was the norm here that everybody kind of expected me to know and me being the quiet shy person that i was you know instead of asking questions and instead of indicating, you know, I've I've been here for a few months. I I haven't lived here before I visited, but I haven't really lived here. I would just kind of internalize it and take the blame for saying like, yeah, I should have just known that because at 16, you don't think like you think when you're a bit older. Um, That was just one little thing. Other things would be, for example, um, you know, I wore the hijab at the time and um, just, like dating and parties and whatever, I never took part in any of that. And I and I didn't want to, because from where I came in Lebanon and the kind of education that I had, which was at a private Islamic school, that kind of stuff was just, you don't even have conversations about it. But I just remember feeling like such an outsider, not because I wanted to engage in such behavior, but because... No one around me thought the same way that I thought, so I kind of just kept it to myself Um, until I myself became a teacher and started teaching newcomers and refugees, and that's when it came into play for me, like, this is important for you to mention to the students so that they don't feel like they're missing out on something or... You know, there's something wrong with them just because, you know, where they came from, it's not acceptable or whatever. And I would just open, open the door for them to ask questions. And um, yeah, that's when that culture shock and, and going through it myself really kicked in um, to make a difference for others, if that makes sense.
1: No, it does. It does. I remember that feeling intimately of like, you know, people being like, but you, you don't want to do it. Like you don't, you don't drink. Why not? Um, and now, ten, you know, 15 years later, um, a lot of classmates from high school have chosen not to drink and they choose, you know, to engage differently. And, and it's, it's quite interesting cause cause we have very different conversations. You're right. than when we do when we're 16 about these things, and it's so easy to feel out of place. Um, when no one else kind of really has that same perspective that you have. So, you, you finish high school and you choose to be a teacher. Was there any particular reason?
0: Uh, well, I wanted, I wanted to be like my parents. Both of them were teachers. Um, that was, from a young age, that was something that I just remember. I, I'm, I remember thinking, I want to be like my mom, you know? Being a teacher is one of the coolest things um and my dad was also uh like social sciences philosophy um teacher in in high school as well in lebanon um but that dream kind of faint, faded away over time um when i went to university so i i i started grade 12 when i was 16 years old i had just turned 16. um so i was i've always been the youngest In all of my classes, so having to make the decision very early, uh, you know, you know, what do you want to be, was difficult. And I remember my parents wanting me to be a dentist, so I applied for science. I also applied for social science, which I wanted to, you know, enroll in. But my parents were like, "No, you have to go into science." So I went into that. And for a while, the focus in my mind was, "Okay, I'm going to become a dentist." And then. I hated my life during university because I hated science. Like I like science, but I don't enjoy learning about it. I don't enjoy teaching it. I don't enjoy, um, it's just not one of my passions. I always found myself thinking about life and thinking about how people treat each other and thinking about culture and religion and differences and, so i always found myself more interested in everything else um, from what i was actually doing so uh in third year university i started asking myself like what do you actually enjoy doing and the only thing that could come to my mind is i enjoy helping people i enjoy i enjoyed helping my friends understand science then i enjoyed science itself so I thought, I wanna go into teacher's college and see where that goes. And it was like, honestly, it was like magic. The moment that I enrolled in teacher's college and started learning about education and started learning about you know, um, inclusion, diversity, all of the things that I wished someone knew when I first moved here, that I wished someone knew when I was still in Lebanon, everything about inquiry-based learning and making sure that you take into account, you know, the students' preferences, their learning style, um, you know, their, the context of where they are living, where they lived. I was like, I was eating that up, like, like soul food. Like I loved it. And I didn't feel all of a sudden school didn't feel like school. School felt like I love this and I enjoy this so much. And then I did my first practicum um, where they sent me to, they were supposed to send me to a public school, but, and and I was really lucky that this happened. At the time, I didn't think that way, but now I do. Um, they sent me to a Catholic school because there were, no, uh, there were no more public schools available. And at the time, the reason I didn't like that I was sent there was, you know, everyone in Teachers College told you, It's important that you go to a school where you can get hired because this is your chance to make an amazing impression so that the principal of that school will say, as soon as you graduate Teachers College, I want you here. But Catholic schools don't hire Muslims. And I was visibly Muslim because I was wearing the hijab at the time. But as soon as I started and I started seeing that students were so interested in asking me questions and teachers, but it was mostly students. Like, what is that? And and what does it mean? And what does it symbolize? And I've always thought that it, it was something oppressive. And I've always thought that women who wore that, you know, I, I made generalizations about them in my mind. And I, as a teacher at the time, felt like, I felt such a great responsibility to, um, to to educate on that and not just teach science. And before I knew it, everybody in the school knew who I was and teachers were asking me to come in during my spare um, to answer their students' questions. And that was such an amazing experience. And I felt like it was building bridges, which really showed me what the true purpose of education is. It's not just about, you know, this is a course, you're going to get this grade, and then you're going to go to university. Like, education really touches the soul of any person if you are actually in it for the right reasons. If you really think of education as, you know, a a timeless, eternal um, non, you know, not based on a grade kind of thing. So, um, that only grew with time. And then my second practicum, my second and final practicum, I was sent to a public school and, um, I got to see that contrast there and I got to see just how, you know, I thought that only a Catholic school would, um, experienced that kind of shock to having someone who looked different in it. But I found that it was actually wherever I went, that there were a lot of misconceptions. It was kind of like a bigger version of high school. Um, Like you mentioned earlier, for example, about drinking. I clearly remember when I did my second practicum, um, teachers having gatherings and then asking, um, you know, inviting me over. And it was just like, let's go have drinks. And I would say, I don't drink. And They had no clue that 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 was, you know, something that not that I'm making the assumption that every hijabi wouldn't drink, but they they didn't associate the two. Like there was so much, I I would say, lack of knowledge um, that I felt like I was helping students who looked like me be understood by those teachers, just by being a teacher in that position myself. Um, That's a very long answer, but, you know, over time, (laughs) over time, it became more and more clear to me that my mission in life um, is to take education from just being confined within the walls of a classroom and within the walls of a school to take it to the world. Um, and to make the the world a bigger classroom and um, you know the rest is history and it's I guess being made right now.
1: (laughs) You've done so much of that through your poetry you've really kind of everything that I'm hearing you say about educating people and really building those bridges but also I think you know one thing that resonates so strongly when you were speaking right now about you know, being part of that community of teachers and and leveraging that power that you have as their colleague to create you know space and compassion for students right in a way mm-hmm. that they aren't able to access on their own or able to teach teachers on their own law so i you know i knowing the incredible poetry that you do and 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 that you write and that you deliver and I, and the amount of i think you've you've spoken in the past about the amount of just um Self, self-awareness and honesty and pain that, that you really have to delve into to deliver that. When did poetry become such a defining part of how you expressed
0: yourself? Was it as you were teaching or, or was it something that predated the teaching? So when I was younger, uh, when I still lived in Lebanon, I remember always feeling like an outsider. I remember always feeling like I was a lot older than my age, and I remember looking at kids my age playing and thinking to myself, "Oh, they're kids. <laughs> Meanwhile, I am their age." But I grew up around I grew up around adults, right? Like everyone in my family was so much older than me. My dad was always into poetry and to he would listen to, um, you know, old Arabic songs by Uncle Fum and Abdul Halim Hafez. And um, he always read the poetry of Khalil Gibran and Nizar Qabbani, Mahmoud Darwish. Like I grew up, you know, my dad had a had a wall that was uh, uh, like a bookshelf, like we had a whole wall that was just books from the ceiling to the ground. And I was just always surrounded by that. And um, also at the same time, the mosque in our village was right in front of our house. And five times a day, I would hear the call to prayer. I would hear, and before the call to prayer, they would put on about five minutes of Quran, which is very poetic as you know um and i always i remember always asking questions what does this mean what does that mean and then when i went to the islamic school from grade 7 to grade 11 um learning about the quran was part of our education and i just i remember my teacher who i had the same teacher for all of those grades always saying you you see things in the poeticness of the scripture that no one else sees and it was true like that's I always I always made connections I always loved the flow of words the rhyming the symbolism the foreshadowing everything and then you know keeping all of that creativity I guess inside and that passion for language inside I just I separated it from everything else because the rest of you know, my life experience at the time was just feeling like an outsider, feeling like I'm too sensitive, feeling like, you know, I'm, I'm very much out of place. I'm older than I am, but at the same time, I still, you know, I'm still sensitive about certain things that kids my age wouldn't be sensitive about. And, um, the only place that I really had an outlet was either in, in those classes or when I would ask my dad or my grandma questions, um, Or when I wrote in my journal, Um, when I was 13 years old, one of my friends made me a journal and I started writing in it. And I just remember feeling such a relief the moment that I would open my journal at the end of the day and write in it. I literally felt like there was a weight that was lifted off of me because finally I was speaking to someone without fearing not being understood and without fearing being judged and without fearing someone say, you're saying you're too sensitive or you're too, you feel too much. You think too much. Um, you know, obviously I was speaking to myself, but I wasn't thinking of that at the time. I was just thinking, I was unloading all of those thoughts and feelings. And when I came here at 16 and, and had to stay many people would say well you're lucky that you were able to stay that you know you and that you did speak english and you didn't go through the heartache that so many people who first of all have to fight to move to a country like canada you know they go through so much to do that and you've got that you know you didn't even have to go through that struggle but that's not what i was feeling at the time i was feeling like i had no choice and i had to stay in a place without having the ability to make that decision and so something inside of me died like that that whatever I was aiming to do by writing in my journal every day which was you know it was giving me hope it was giving me um, it was giving me something to dream about and how I wanted my life to be and that didn't include being in canada it didn't include being far away from my village from my grandma from from the language something as simple as you know speaking arabic all the time to going to a place where i'm speaking english all the time you know i further felt like a stranger and every time i would feel that and and get the urge to sit down and write it i would feel like well there is no hope anymore there is no this is not getting me anywhere and so feeling so did you stop writing altogether i did yeah so at that point i actually ripped up that journal that i had and i remember the tiny shreds that i ripped it into when i was so upset and i stopped writing and i i remember like the years that went by from you know the age of 16 to the time when i started writing writing again which would have been 22 23 um i i think of those years as such miserable years that they were i was more numb than anything else but it was also numb with a kind of sadness and a kind of yeah so so i went back to writing actually um when i started teaching so when i finished My second practicum graduated and then applied for my master's in education because I loved it so much. I started teaching full-time that year, and I remember my very first teaching assignment was a group of eight Libyan refugees, newcomers, who had just come uh, because of what happened in Libya at the time. And the principal walked in with them, and I was teaching at an Islamic school at the time. So the principal walked in with them and said these are your responsibility. You're gonna teach them English, you're gonna teach them everything about life here. And um, they were from grade two to grade eight. And I just, like, I'll never forget this moment. I won't even forget where we were standing in the school. Just looking at their faces, I saw exactly what I felt when I came here at 16. Feeling so out of place, feeling like, what am I doing here? Like a, like a like just this shock, like they're here, but they don't know, they haven't fully internalized that they're here. And they just there, there's this like feeling of I'm lost. And quickly I learned from them that they were feeling those feelings, they were experiencing those emotions and They were feeling out of place. They were feeling like, you know, the girl in grade eight had been the top student her whole life. And now she's coming to a place where she doesn't know 10 words of English. And it was heartbreaking. So there was an element of wanting to sit down and and write about how education really should be because I felt like the system wasn't prepared for anyone who didn't, you know, Learn English from a young age. And so I started writing about how, you know, students are like a desert. Like, we need to quench their thirst. We need to give them whatever it is that they need. And I found so much like resistance from other teachers who would always say, like, I've been teaching for 20 years. Like, what do you know as a new teacher? So I started writing in a way to advocate for my students. And to give them a voice, to give their feelings a voice. And that's how I started writing again.
1: I think that's, you know, it's incredible because your writing started, you know, and stopped at points of, I think, hope or difficulty for you. But what really inspired it to come back was this desire to help others.
0: Yes. Seeing
1: yourself in these young students um, and recognizing the the trouble that it was. You know, a good friend of mine who is um, a Sudanese refugee herself, you know, she always tells people and people say, well, you're so lucky to be here. And she says, I don't think you understand. I don't know what here is. Yeah. You know, the thing about here is it's not there. That's mm-hmm. the only reason I'm here. And, uh, you know, she had moved, um, I believe, to Pennsylvania when she was quite young from Sudan. Her name is Emmy Mahmoud. She's now a UNHCR.
0: Um, I actually so- met her. We went to we went to uh, the Sharjah Book Fair together last year. Yeah, she's an, inc- an incredible poet, incredible <laughs>
1: And, um, and and hearing her kind of explain to people in, in that way that she can with her with her poetry, with her voice, with her, you know, I think people can actually hear the you know the 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 pain sometimes, but also the, the power, this idea that you are the one who gets to control your story. And that's what poetry was for her. And I and, and I wonder, is that what poetry has been for you?
0: Poetry for me has been a way to put my voice out there into the world um, and advocate for myself while at the same time I'm advocating for others who are in the exact same position, who are afraid to speak up, who are afraid to say, this is how I'm really feeling. Um, I've always said that Yes, sometimes you'll read something and think to yourself, where is this coming from? You know, I know Nejwa didn't go through something like this, but it just goes to show you that we don't show, it's like an iceberg. You don't show 90% of what you go through. Poetry gives me permission to share everything that's on the inside that I'm afraid or used to be afraid that the world would know about me. And and sometimes poetry is a way to express myself, uh, my feelings, my emotions, and sometimes it's a way for me to express my rage and my, like, my anger on behalf of a group of people. Sometimes it's to fight for myself and sometimes it's to fight for others. So yeah, I, I do see a lot of similarities there.
1: So you, when you first started writing again, it was to advocate for your students. And it's yes. now, you, me out, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, about 10, 12 years?
0: I started, no, it hasn't been 10, 12 years. It's, I started when I was 22 or 23, so about seven or eight years. Okay, so I'll, I'll react. So Nezwa, when you first started, restarted writing
1: and Mm -hmm. really leveraging your voice. It was more to advocate for your students, you know, seven, eight years ago. Yes. When, when did that change where you started owning more of your story and, and kind of like really using poetry to not only, not necessarily only to advocate for others, but also to, to put your own reality out there, your own thoughts, your own feelings.
0: So I always say it this way. I say when I started writing, I, my intention was to help my students speak up for them. But there's something magical about writing where it, you, you know, at one point you think you're leading the words and then they start leading you and they start spilling whatever emotions you have inside of you. And that's kind of what happened with me. So I started with that intention, then slowly but surely it became about my 16-year-old self that never healed what she needed to heal at that time. And so for me to fully feel like I was being authentic with what I was advising my students and everyone around me to do I had to do the work myself. If I was telling you, open up about what you're feeling, I needed to open up about what I was feeling. If I was telling you, heal your pain, I needed to heal my pain. So I started going inwards and I started, instead of just, you know, um, sometimes I would get these like really powerful ideas and I would put them on paper and instead of just leaving it there, I would sit there and reflect on it. Where did this come from? Why do I think this? When did I start thinking this? And how could this help me at the same time that it's helping someone else? And I would just, I would sit for hours and just write whatever came to me. And it was like a journey of coming back to myself. And I started gathering up courage bit by bit through that process. And also, by seeing the number of people around the world, because at that point it had extended past my students. At that point I self-published my first book and it did so well and it brought so many people from everywhere who were saying, thank you for putting what I've been feeling for so many years on paper in a way that I couldn't put it. And so all of a sudden being seen and feeling that, I'm not the only one who thinks and feels this way gave me, not that I needed the external validation, but it did give me a lot of validation to say, you know what? There is actually nothing wrong with the way that I think. So, and I'm not alone with the way that I think. So that in addition to the earlier process that I mentioned of just digging deeper and deeper and deeper, when they came together, it just, that was it. It was an explosion of me saying, I'm not afraid of being who I am. My thoughts and my emotions and everything that I write about, they make me who I am. So how can I be proud of what I've written, about what I felt, if I'm not proud of who I am as a person and and my truth and my story? Yeah. yeah. Because you self-published your first book, right? So how do you of putting
1: yourself out there like how did you how did you find you know not necessarily because it's it's such a vulnerable thing to be writing this poetry your poetry uh, you know and 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 I'm and I'm internally grateful that you had the courage to self-publish but what really what really kind of made you feel like this is so necessary for people to read this how did you overcome that fear
0: yeah so when I first started putting my writings out there um everyone was saying like, we need these writings in one place, like put them in in one book where we could actually get them if like when we can read whatever we we want, as opposed to reading it in a blog or on social media. So I started compiling all of my writings from the age of about 22, 23 to 26. And that's when I self-published. And what gave me that final push to self-publish was I was going through a very dark time in my life at around the age of 24, 25. And I felt like no one understands me. I felt like um, because I was putting my writings out there to a vast world that didn't always resemble the world that I came from, I felt like I was there to hear everyone from diverse backgrounds, but there was rarely anyone to hear me. So I felt like even though I was very vulnerable with my writings, I was writing in a more universal language about, you know, about pain and healing and, but to sit there and really talk about what was going through on the inside in terms of feeling like I'm living in a place where, you know, 99% of the places where I go, I don't feel like I fit in and And also at home with my family, including the culture, the religion, everything. I also, I'm thinking different things than the way that I was raised to think. And so I was very, very isolated. And my writings were the only voice that I had and the only only thing about me that I felt, you know, that's my last hope. It's pushing this work out there and saying, this is my voice. This is who I am. This is how I think. And I just want to make sure that I give myself that, that I believe in myself to a point and in in my thoughts and in my feelings and emotions that I'm actually going to take that step and put it out there. And I knew nothing about self publishing. I never saw myself as a writer. the the moment that I decided to just move forward with it, even after compiling the writings, because, you know, many people will write a manuscript and it will stay with them for years and years and years. I compiled my manuscript and the week before, um, it would have been December of 2015, I went to France to visit my uncle for a few days just to get a break and to think, you know, to ponder upon life and to think, who am I and what do I stand for? And just having that distance, kind of, it alleviated for me, it, because it distanced me from where I, I lived for so long, it put everything into perspective, and it made me feel that sense of freedom. Like, I don't have to worry so much about what the world around me, where I live, thinks of what I put out there. And so it gave me that push. So when I came back, I remember going to a corner in chapters, which is usually where I went to write and just researching self-publishing, um, researching what I needed. I hired an editor from the States. I did everything so quickly because it just it became clear to me that all I need to focus on is putting the work out there as opposed to what is this person going to think? What is that person going to think? And, oh my God, do I need to be ashamed of the way I think? Do I need to be ashamed of the way I feel? Like I put that aside. That wasn't as important as me, myself, rising above all of those fears and it just happened. And right now when I look back at it, I'm like, wow, like I actually did something that, took a lot of courage, but I didn't see it that way at the time. So why do you
1: think, you know, that people resonate with your poetry so much, your message so much? What do you think it is that pulls them in?
0: I think it's how raw the writing is and at the same time how, um, (laughs) not angry, it is and how, um, what's the word that I'm thinking of? I, th- I think how soft but powerful at the same time it is. Like you're speaking from your heart and you're speaking about something that's so um, scary for you to speak about, but you're saying it in, in a non-threatening way. You're just saying, this is what I'm feeling. And I, I know that the world might judge me for it. I know that it's, it, you know, many people look at me and say, you live such a privileged life or you shouldn't be this way, but I'm gonna write it anyway. And I think it's just that raw expression that isn't necessarily asking for anything other than being heard and being seen.
1: It gives other people that permission to show up and and to be there. So you've you've once in an interview said that you have, you chose your real self. Yes. And I, I wonder what do you mean? Like, how do you define self? But what does it mean to choose your real self?
0: Well, you know, our image of ourselves is a construct that, you know, has been in the making since the moment that we were born you're shaped, whether you like it or not, by where you were born, what language you, not necessarily a language as in, you know, English or Arabic or French or whatever, but just how the dynamics of how the world worked around you, what was right, what was wrong, what you should be afraid of, what you shouldn't be afraid of, what's safe, what's not safe, what's shameful, what's not shameful, and you grow to define yourself, by all of those factors. And that's rarely who you really are on the inside, who you really are on the inside. I think, I think most people don't show that. What they project into the world is what they think will get them acceptance and validation and love and you are enough and you're okay. And so we put on these masks Um, whether we we see it or not. But if if you really were to sit down and ask yourself, you know, make an inventory over a period of 24 hours of things you say and things you do and ask yourself, why am I doing this? And am I actually doing it for myself? Or is the intention to be seen a certain way by others so that they could validate me or love me or Mm -hmm. give me whatever. Or see me as
1: worthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: or see me as worthy. I guarantee you most of what we do is is not for ourselves, it's for others and what their reaction to us makes us feel on the inside. It's so scary. It sounds so, you
1: know, it actually sounds when you say that, and I, I love the teacher like homework assignment that you've given everyone, I hope everyone listening actually does that, um, and I, I will actually do that. But. to to write down everything we say and do for those 24 hours and to really ask ourselves what, why we're doing it, right? Like, is this, is this genuinely for us and for who we are, or is this for us to be perceived a certain way or to be accepted in a certain way? Mm -hmm. And it sounds so simple, but even as I'm thinking about it now, it is probably one of the most terrifying assignments I've ever been given (laughs) because you have to be so honest with you do. You have to be so honest with yourself and and I think sometimes the answers are not, are not what we, you know, what we think of ourselves. You know, I can, I, I can walk around and say I'm incredibly self-confident and I'm sure that, you know, what I'm doing is for me. But if I know that if I genuinely took that inventory, a lot of the things I say and do might not necessarily be a hundred percent because of me, they're off, you know, sometimes they're to be accepted for sure. And sometimes they're to make others feel accepted for sure. And so I wonder Because I think if everyone were to actually do that, we might, we might appreciate and understand ourselves better, but also one another better and and really understand how we need to show up for one another. But how do we marry that, you know, the psychological human need to be needed, which is, you know, one of the most kind of driving needs, you know, to be accepted, to be needed, to be loved, to have community Mm -hmm. with this need to also be true to ourselves, even
0: when it doesn't necessarily, when the two don't necessarily marry? So I get this question a lot on, um, you know, it's, it's about relationships, but I think it applies to to the question that you're asking me, where, you know, people will say things like, I just want this person to love me, I don't understand why they don't love me. And I find that, People are chasing after someone who doesn't love them and they confuse that need for that person to turn around and say, I love you or to make them feel loved with feeling love towards that person when really it's. You're trying to convince someone to love you so that you could feel like you are worthy of being loved. Like you want to fight for that love. You want to change someone's opinion about you from being you're worthy. You're not worthy of my love to being you are worthy of my love. And that fight is external. It's not within you. Like you are fighting to prove your worth by asking someone to tell you that you are worthy and we don't only do that in romantic relationships we do that with our families we do that with our community we do that with our colleagues with our friends we want to convince that person that we are worthy of belonging we are worthy of being needed our work is valuable whatever it is just so that we could feel that we are worthy but what if Instead of deriving that worthiness from someone else, we derived it from ourselves, and all of a sudden, your existence, your value is no longer dependent on who needs you, who mm-hmm. deems you needy of sorry who deems you worthy of being needed, who deems your work as valuable, who deems what if instead of waiting for that from someone and molding ourselves into a person that that someone sees has that worth. What if we did that and we existed in a way that's like, this is who I am. And there's always somebody out there who's going to need me. There's always somebody out there who's going to see me as worthy, who's going to see me and hear me. It might not be the people who I've been trying so hard to convince of that work Mm -hmm. you know you're always gonna be needed by someone you're always going to there's always someone out there who will see you as worthy always but it depends on are you are you going to project
1: are you going to show up as your truest self so they can actually so they can actually kind of be part of that you know it's what I find most incredible about what you're saying, Nashua, is for so many people, it is the hardest thing. You know what I mean? To, to show up to the people who you have surrounded yourself by oftentimes family and friends, um, and say, this is who I am without, you know, without the caveats of wanting to be needed or loved or accepted to show up with that level of vulnerability is so terrifying to so many people. And it's, for so many people, you know, they're in their 40s or 50s or 60s. And I have so many um, colleagues who tell me like, oh, life got so much better after 50. I stopped giving a shit what anybody thought of me. And <laughs> yeah. um, and you're like, why well, wait till 50? Exactly. Because, because yeah. you are, you know, you're sitting here and you're like, you're in your late 20s, early 30s. And you're talking about things that I think it takes a lifetime for most people to realize mm-hmm. and a lifetime for most people to, to accept. And I think that's so incredibly powerful. And, you know, I... I ask this to everybody who comes on the show um, and I always, and, I, and I'm so curious about your answer in particular, um, but if you had to bring any one thing to this community, mm-hmm. this community of listeners to the table, um, any book, uh, any film, any person, any idea,
0: what would it be? I'm going to... Bring an idea that I think anyone who's listening can probably get a different answer to based on who they are and what they're going through in their lives and their history and everything. And it's just, it's along the lines of what we were just talking about. What if the real you is enough? just think about that what if you don't have to put on a show or what if you don't have to pretend to think or feel things that you don't actually think or feel just to feel like you are worthy what if it's enough to be the real you and what if whoever doesn't accept you as the real you, even if they'd accepted you your whole life for a version of yourself that isn't actually the real you, what if you don't need their acceptance? What if it's more important that you put the real you ahead of who you think you should be? Wow. That's what I would bring to the table. Can I ask you a question? Of course. How do you accept the real you? I accept the real me by giving myself permission to be human, by giving myself permission to think outside of what I've been taught to think and to not judge myself for doing that. I, give myself permission to make mistakes and I I know it's hard for people especially people who are very cultured or um, maybe that's the wrong word to use but people who've grown with strict boundaries of how to think and what's right and what's wrong it's hard for them to hear like I give myself permission to make mistakes you're obviously not going into this thinking I'm making a mistake. You're thinking I'm taking a risk and it might turn out to be a mistake, but if it does turn out to be a mistake, I'm not going to look at myself as a flawed human being. I'm going to say I made a mistake and I can come back from it. I can learn from it and I can continue being that, that worthy person with that mistake because no one is perfect. Like, no one is perfect. 100% of the people living, 100% of the people who are no longer living, and 100% of the people who will live in the future, not one person is perfect. We all make mistakes, whether we do that behind closed doors or in public. That's not the, that's not what, you know, differentiates between making a mistake and not. It's not about people knowing about it. It's about you knowing about it I think that it's I'm just
1: I really am so glad we've had this conversation I have one last question for you but but before I ask it I just I hope everyone listening um I hope everyone listening reads your books I really do I hope everyone listening reads your books I hope everyone I know for me you know when I started my career I was around 21 um and I had never seen, and to this day see very few, um, but definitely never in my age, someone who looked like me doing the work I was doing. And the amount of comments I got, and really the sense of, and I had never grown up with imposter syndrome before in my life. And so to suddenly feel completely invalid and worthless in so many of the rooms I was in was, was such a different feeling, but one that because of the way that i've always been this idea that okay if you work hard enough you're going to change it this idea that if i just worked hard enough if i showed people what i was about if i proved to them that i was worthy that that things would be different that they would then see me as worthy right that kind of model minority mentality we have um and it took me longer than i like to admit to realize that it doesn't matter what i do it doesn't matter how many degrees i have it it really nothing matters People will see you in a particular way, and the only way you get out of kind of that mental spiral is if you're compassionate with yourself, and if you begin to see yourself differently. And that really was the tipping point for me, and a huge, a huge amount of that. I think of, of w- one of the things that really sped up that mental process was reading some of your writing and being like, well, you know, Neshal was able to do it, and she's Canadian Lebanese. I mean, we're not so different. I can totally do this, well, <laughs> and so. So to hear you say this, and for for people to get to hear it directly from you, I think is so, so powerful. So my very last question for you, Najwa, is what does it mean to you? What does being at the table mean? And how do you invite others to the table?
0: Being at the table means showing up as the real me, and showing up with compassion, for both myself as a human being and for the person you know sitting across from me as well being at the table to me means not just thinking of myself and and what i feel and what i think but also not completely dismissing that while you know talking to someone else or learning about what they're going through or so it's a balance of showing up for myself at the same time that I'm showing up for someone else. Um, Yeah, that's what I would say. I honestly
1: just can't, I cannot thank you enough for this conversation and I know it's a conversation that I am going to, um, that is going to sit with me for a while. I'm probably going to come back to, you're probably going to get a ridiculous amount of emails and phone calls from me being like, so Nezra, let's do that again. Let's do that again. I have some more questions. Because <laughs> um, I, I just, like, you know, in Arabic we say mashallah, when when something is is so remarkable and I find the way that you think and the way that you almost give permission. and And to everyone, but if, you know, what really resonates with me is particularly to other young women who are often told that they are not enough or too much depending on which, you know, country they're in because they, they straddle so many of those cultural um, spaces. I just, you know, from the bottom of my heart, I really appreciate you taking the time today.
0: Of course. And thank you for doing this. And, uh, you know, I also want to say like on a personal level, I would be more than happy to have these conversations often. And I think that just having them, I'm thinking of all the women who will be listening to this and and men, but mostly women, just because that is the shared experience that we have. And I think it's such a unique position to be in. I'm thinking of the young women listening to this and the old women listening to this and how just listening to it, will make them feel like, wow, someone out there actually understands this. Someone out there actually went through this. Like, it's okay for me to feel this way or think this way. Like, that alone, just hearing this will give them that push to be themselves. And that just, that brings me, like, Oh,
1: no, of course. And I, like, I always jokingly tell people, you know, for the third culture kids, um, it's it's difficult to to talk about self-care sometimes. It's difficult to talk about challenging, you know the barriers or or the boundaries or the realities or the lessons that you were raised with. Um, and it's also it you know, it's not always true that where you are is better than where you were, right? Or that somehow things make more sense in one place or another. Um, you kind of have to take, little pieces of yourself from all the different places that you've lived, from all the different, you know, family members that you have, from all the different cultures that you've existed in. Um, and, and you create kind of this own unique in the way that everyone does, this own unique individual. Um, but but that it's often difficult to then find people who match those same puzzle pieces. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think conversations like this, you know, kind of give everybody permission to say, it's not, it's not necessary for people to match the experiences I've had or to, to, you know, match my, but it is necessary for us to have that compassion for one another and that Absolutely. recognition of one another and to be able to see one another and say, you know, all of the pieces that make you up are as valuable as all the pieces that make me up.
0: Absolutely. Yes. I agree with you.
1: I'm, I'm so glad we had this conversation, Nishwa. Thank you so, so much.
0: Amplify our
1: important message by leaving a review or subscribing. Collaborate with us to encourage more people to shout for change. And be on the lookout. We have more episodes coming soon, and I can't wait to share them with you. From At The Table, I'm Dr. Lam Thank you for joining us.